The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Uh, joining me for the hour here is uh, Chris Irons, who's got a phenomenal uh, podcast himself and really has a really, uh, I think, unique way of talking about uh, markets and the current environment here. But Chris, for those who are not familiar with your background, just introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get involved in markets? And what are you doing with the podcast? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, my name's Chris Irons. I'm from Philadelphia. <laughs> um, I got involved with markets when I was probably like 18 years old, um, just on my own. I didn't go to school for finance or anything like that. I spent, uh, I don't know, a good decade uh, learning the markets by losing a lot of money and getting everything wrong. Uh, taught myself, you know, how to trade equities, how to trade options, how to trade, you know, pretty much anything. Um, <clears throat> you know, an expensive lesson, but one that I'm glad that I learned on my own and not from somebody else. Uh, glad I kind of did it the hard way. Um, from there, I started writing under, you know, my name, uh, quote the Raven. I, I went to work for one of my first gigs out of, uh, college or actually out of graduate school was uh, working for a uh, small startup company, public company that ultimately, you know, didn't do very well. But I worked as their head of uh, investor relations, which got me like my first taste into the world of public filings and, uh, you know, sitting around with securities lawyers and C-suite executives and looking over, pouring over excruciatingly uh, minute details in filings and things like that. Uh, I did that for a couple of years. Uh, then I went to work for a company called Geo Investing, um, who I found because they were producing a lot of research on U.S. listed China based companies, uh, along with you know Carson and Muddy Waters when they first started doing it. Um, you know, right around the same time, in like around 2010, 2011. Uh, so I, you know, I read a report by geo-investing on long-way petroleum. And I was like, wow, this is like real research compared to a lot of the sell-side crap that I had been reading. Uh, and a lot of like the automated garbage that gets spit out um, online. At the same time, I was writing on my own under, uh, quote, the Raven on Seeking Alpha, just kind of learning. And, um, uh, you know, they had kind of heard of me from writing on Seeking Alpha and I knew of them from their reports. So went to go work for them for like five years. They specialized in identifying um, microcap 
longs, actually like nano cap and micro cap longs. Uh, there were, you know, two partners to that business, Maj Shodan and Dan David. Maj specialized in um, <clears throat> micro caps, something that he's extremely talented in. And uh, Dan worked a lot on the short side, um, working uh, to expose a lot of U.S. listed China based frauds. So I spent like five and a half years there um, working for them. And that kind of helped me uh, take my understanding of public filings and details and nuance and all those things uh, to a different level. And then, you know, I became active doing uh, <clears throat> research on the short side which is something that I still do. Um, I also do, uh, you know, my podcasts and I have my Substack uh, that I write on. And that's pretty much the long and short of it. Uh, there's not really, you know, I guess throughout the process, I, there's a video on my YouTube channel where I gave a speech in Vegas a couple of years ago that lays out this whole story a little bit longer. But, you know, throughout the process, I started to kind of identify that a lot of the same markers of fraud and nonsense that you would see in public companies uh, also are found when it comes to the macro economy, <laughs> which made me intensely skeptical of monetary policy and, and you know, macro in general, um, you know, all this MMT garbage and, uh, you know, New Keynesian stuff. And, you know, uh, to me growing up, economics was very simple. Uh, in the house where I was raised, you know, you balance your checkbook, you you run at a surplus, you spend less than you earn, you know, all very basic like econ 101 principles. And what I saw when I started to understand the macroeconomic picture a little bit better was, wow, we do the exact opposite of that. Like we're completely irresponsible and we've given it a name, modern monetary theory or, you know, Keynesian theory, whatever you want to call it that day um, to kind of let people know that it's okay that we're doing this, you know, because there's some academic sounding jargon that can explain away the fact that uh, we're being fiscally and monetarily irresponsible. And um, I took exception with that years ago when I started to figure it out. Every day, the more that I learned, <clears throat> excuse me, every day, the more that I learned, the more horrified I became. Uh, and so, and that's, you know, that that's continued now for years. There hasn't been a point where I've stopped and been like, wow, I think things are going to get better it, every day. It's more like, wow, I can't believe they're letting things get worse. And so here we are with, you know, CPI at eight and a half percent, starting to reap some of the whirlwind of what we've been sowing here over the last couple of years. And it's one of the things that I spend a lot of time writing about and talking about on my podcast. All right. So there's a lot of, and there's a lot of directions to go with that. And, and, and that, I saw I saw that on YouTube. I think the title of it was uh, "Our Economy is Bullshit" or "It's Built on Bullshit," which I would largely agree with, given uh, just the way that debt, the trajectory of debt, has been. But but I want to go to the name of your of your Substack. You call it the "Quote the Ravens Fringe Finance," and I want to focus on the word "fringe" for a moment because you've got the mainstream narratives around markets where it's mostly, to your point, sell side analysts, portfolio managers that are basically hugging an index because. There's career risk otherwise. And then there's everybody else that you see on Fintwit, which is trying to get a little bit deeper, try to understand, trying to understand the truth and and figure out how to uh, differentiate against the passive vehicles. Um, fringe seems to have a, a uh, connotation that it's negative, but in reality, it's just a different point of view. So I want you to talk about what what having a fringe outlook means in the context of markets, in the context of the economy, 
And why is it that more people should be focused on different voices and different ways of expressing things the way people follow you? Listen. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I don't take my t- myself very seriously. Um, and so, you know, I, I named the blog that for a couple of reasons, right? The first is that I, I really want people to, you know, it's the same reason that if you read my disclaimer on the posts, um, you know, what it says is, look, I'm an idiot and I get a lot of things wrong often. I probably get more things wrong than I get right. I mean, that's probably a fair statement. Um, and some of the things that I write about and talk about are in this gray area between, you know, what we know as an accepted truth and things that maybe we're still trying to figure out. Right. So, you know, I call it fringe finance, you know, one, because it's funny, you know, it's a little hyperbolic, but also two, because there's a whole host of issues that people don't talk about. And it's not because they're either right or wrong. It's because nowadays it feels like we can't talk about them. You can't raise critical questions. You can't have Socratic dialogue. You There's certain buzzwords that now you can't say. I mean, in the world of investing, if you want to figure out whether or not something you're buying or selling is worth buying or selling, the way to do it is to get all the facts out on the table, everything as objectively as possible. Find me the biggest bull that knows the most about the company and tell me what the best bull case is and find me the biggest bear and tell me what the best bear case is and lay those things out like, you know, fucking tarot cards on the table in front of me and let me sift through them. And, you know, <clears throat> that's what analysis is, right? Analysis is is trying to take all of the objective facts that you can ascertain and then from there, try to determine what your best course of action is to, to generate alpha, right? This company's either undervalued or it's overvalued. I'll short it or I'll go long or it's just not worth my time and I can't figure it out, so I'll do nothing. <clears throat> and so, you know, I'm a firm believer that when it comes to everything, not just investments, but, you know, politics, ideologies, uh, whatever it is, that the only way we're going to arrive at some type of best practices as a human race, as a civilization, as a society, as a country, as, you know, a group of investors, whatever, is to be able to get everything out on the table and then sift through it from there, right? And so the the climate here over the last couple of years is has been... Uh, has been making it difficult to do that because you have big tech, you have social media, you have politicians, you have all these people kind of ganging up together to try to squelch the, uh, 
the parts of that objective dialogue that they don't like. So in other words, if you say something like learn to code, you know, you're just immediately banned and shut down and kicked off the social media platform. You know, if you ask a critical question about, you know, where the COVID virus came from or whether or not, you know, whatever the vaccines work as they've been, uh, purported to work, or you ask about, you know, modern monetary theory, or you ask about, you know, why we're focused on jobs and spending instead of savings and underconsumption. You know, you're kind of automatically <clears throat> labeled as a conspiracy theorist just for bringing this stuff up. When the, the reality of the situation is you have to talk about these things. All of these things have to be discussed, even if it's only to rule them out. Right. Even if even if it is wrong to say that the virus came out of a lab, it still has to be discussed. I mean, you can't you can't say that it's wrong without objectively looking at it and analyzing it and, you know, going through the scientific method and trying to uh, figure out whether those claims hold any water. And so, you know, the fringe is kind of this area here where like you're not really allowed to even tread anymore. And so that's kind of where I focus a lot of my time on. And I, to be honest with you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing that if I didn't honestly think that therein lied some of the answers to some things, you know, like certainly I'm not getting everything right. Okay. Perfect example is ivermectin. I wrote an article about ivermectin you know, six months ago, eight months ago, asking whether or not, oh, you know, it's kind of started to feel like the mainstream media was starting to pivot on ivermectin a little bit. And of course, there was all this, you know, clinical data out there that was being pushed around. And there was a great meta-analysis that was put out over whether or not it was effective. And then that was challenged because one of the, you know, one of the underlying analyses was fraudulent and all this other shit. So I wrote this article about whether or not, you know, the tide was going to turn and eventually there would be a pivot on it. And there wasn't, you know, in fact, there were uh, one or two other studies that have been released subsequent to that that really haven't shown anything in favor of ivermectin. Um, And so without discussing the details of that, the point is that, hey, you know, I wrote this article and it looks as though, you know, it may not have been on base. Right now. In February, I also wrote an article called Modern Monetary Theories Destroying the United States which I truly believe. I mean, these are opinion pieces, right? And so, uh, and in November, you know, in December, before inflation got to where it is now, you know, I was writing articles talking about how these small ticks and what was then being called transitory inflation uh, could turn into a much bigger disaster than we thought. And what happened over the next six months is inflation went through the roof and the uh, politicians and the central bankers were forced to recant this idiocy about inflation being transitory. Um, And now here we are watching 9% of our purchasing power on our saved money disappear uh, year over year. And so in that case, you know, that was kind of the right question to ask, right? And I I really do believe, and we can talk about it, that modern monetary theory is just a we have uh, we have ridden this train to the end of the line here. <laughs> there, there's nowhere left for us to go. But the reason the blog is called Fringe Finance is because, you know, there are some real objective truths and some real objective answers that exist in this gray area. 
And, you know, what we've seen, not just with finance, but, you know, in the world of politics, too. I mean, if you look at what happened with, you know, when this Hunter Biden's laptop thing happened, there were like 50 intelligence officials that came out and swore to Politico, I think, who published it, that this thing was fake and it was Russian disinformation. You know, and now here we are a year later and it turns out actually that that's not the case. It was real. You know, and so then when we were, you know, asking about whether or not it was real and the official narrative was that it was disinformation, oh, you were seen as peddling disinformation. In January 2020, when COVID first, when the headlines first started breaking coming out of Wuhan, that, hey, you know, we got a dozen cases here, we got 15 cases there. And, you know, I started to write about it. And it wasn't just me. It was Chris Martinson. It was George Gammon. It was a lot of these other people. That, hey, you know, if it's going on in Wuhan and we just had the holiday season and it's contagious, it's going to be here. It's already here in the United States to start preparing. Well, I was labeled a fear monger. I was labeled, you know, somebody that was trying to incite panic. And I wasn't just sitting at home typing go buy masks and, you know, doing nothing. I mean, I was stocking my basement with liquor, (laughs) among other things. But, you know, I was telling people, hey, I'm going out and I'm buying ammunition and I'm buying whiskey and I'm buying masks. And, you know, I was tweeting out pandemic preparedness uh, lists saying, hey, you don't have to do this. But in the event that you want to be safe and you want to get ahead of the crowd and this is something, it's better safe than sorry. And so three months later, while everybody else was fighting over toilet paper, um, you know, it became pretty evident that that it was an issue. Uh, and so, again, that was one of those things that at the time, you know, it was on the fringe to talk about. Right. It was nobody was really certainly wasn't the mainstream narrative. But if well, you're right, and, and I think the issue with, with, with the way the mainstream frames the word fringe in general is that you mentioned it earlier, that there's a view that it's conspiratorial. Whereas it's really just asking questions and trying to apply a degree of critical thought around what somebody else is saying, right? And you see that a lot, unfortunately, I think, when it comes to the investment crowd and, and the Federal Reserve and the policymakers because they have a narrative. But then all you have to do is ask a few questions a little bit deeper and you're labeled as fringe, you're labeled as somebody that you shouldn't be listened to. But then oftentimes these these investment uh, fringe arguments and theories end up being proven right just they were early. Yeah, and it's and, and that's okay. You know, I don't mind, you know, I label myself fringe. Uh, you know, I, I you know, I I put in my disclaimer that I get things wrong. Um <clears throat> I'm okay. You know, like I don't need to be um you know, Mr. Suit and Tie on CNBC. I don't really care. I don't care like how seriously people choose to take me or not take me. I mean, I honestly don't give a shit. I didn't wake up one day 10 years ago and say, oh, I want to be Mr. You know, fucking finance contributor. Like I could care less. You know, I have other things in my life that, you know, I enjoy doing. I like jujitsu. I like drinking beer and watching football. I like hanging out with my friends, you know, so it's not my goal to become some, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, some finance commentator that's uh, appreciated for his insights or whatever. You know, I write because it's cathartic for me. Um, It's easy for me. It seems to me a lot of these things seem to be common sense. Oftentimes when I write pieces, they generate a lot of good feedback. So people email me or they write in the comments and bring up things that I didn't know, which is something and that happens on Twitter, too. That's something that I really appreciate. Um, because it kind of begets additional information. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I embrace the idea. If you want to call me, whatever you want to call me. And, and I know there's a large group of people out there that, that, you know, really don't take anything that I have to say seriously. And that's fine with that. Like, I'm okay with that. You know, that's not, that's not a big deal. So I just kind of embrace that. I'm happy to call myself fringe. I'm happy to, uh, tell you that I'm an idiot. I'm happy to tell you that, you know, I've lost money trading. I'm happy to tell you that, you know, I don't feel like I have anything to prove. I'm, I'm just trying to make sense of some stuff and, and that's it. And then on Sundays, I'm trying to watch the Eagles and, you know, eat tacos and drink beer. Pretty, pretty simple guy. You know, what's interesting is that in the context of asset allocation, the, the synonym for fringe would be satellite, right? When you think about sort of a core satellite type of portfolio, the satellite strategies that are on the periphery are the fringe strategy this year. But I think if you're going to be uh, an entrepreneur or try to invest differently, you have to have a fringe mindset because otherwise you are core. You're just cheap. Well, exactly. And, you know, a lot of what I'm talking about, which is trying to get all this objective information and then kind of sort through the muck to get to the truth is it's very similar to like special situation investing, right? When somebody releases a, uh, a negative report on a company or, you know, there's a rumor going around that a company might get bought out or there's, uh, you know, a couple of language changes in a 10K somewhere buried in the risk factors that nobody noticed or whatever. I mean, what's the point? The point is you want to get all as much objective information as possible and you want to process it faster than anybody else. It's difficult to do nowadays because a lot of things are algo driven, but there are still plenty of, you know, plenty of pockets of information arbitrage like that where your success as an investor is going to be based on how quickly you can digest, you know, the objective facts and then and then process what you believe them to mean. Because, you know, when a special situation occurs, whether it's a stock spike on a buyout rumor or a stock, you know, plunge on a, on a negative report from a company or whatever, um, they're just dislocations. And then it's up to you to figure out whether those dislocations are opportunistic or whether or not they are, uh, you know, correct in, in the way that they're moving and then figure things out accordingly. So it, it's very much like special situations investing where, you know, the, the clock is ticking and, uh, and your job is to kind of root through uh, as much objective data as possible to arrive at uh, a conclusion. And, you know, look, when it comes to something like modern monetary theory, okay, and it comes to something like inflation, it comes to something like the central banks, I mean, I, you know, I, I can't, I don't do a lot of podcasts other than my own. I don't do a lot of these spaces and stuff, you know, I... I don't I don't feel like sitting back and trying to convince the world every day that, you know, these policies are misguided and that they're leading us in the wrong direction and that, you know, we're going to reap what what we're sowing. I mean, you can you could say it every day. Like, I don't have the stamina of like Peter Schiff, right, who can just go and go and go. And, you know, he's on the news and he's doing a podcast and he's doing this and he's doing that. And like. I got to tell you, you know, not trying to sound like an asshole, but like, you know, people invite me to come on their podcast and stuff all the time. And I'm just like, you know, what, what, what do I have to add other than what I wrote this week or what I said on my podcast this week, which is nothing, you know, like if it, it's so you can't make it make sense for people that $30 trillion in debt. And, you know, like I just wrote this morning, 
Elizabeth Warren is out there talking about Joe Biden canceling student debt. I know a lot of that's uh, government debt, but I mean, that debt gets monetized and the taxpayers wind up paying for it one way or another through inflation or, you know, we're out there talking about things like that at a point where the country's in an inflationary crisis and, and we're signing bills into law that, you know, where we're going out and spending an additional $450 billion that we don't have. I mean, to be in the position we're in and not be doing anything other than decreasing spending, uh, government spending right now, uh, is asinine. And, um, you know, I can't, I can't make people come to that conclusion. I can't, you know, I can't make Joe Biden arrive at the conclusion that price fixing oil is not going to work. You know, like uh, we have overshot the mark of basic economic laws so badly. And we have compiled this horrible, you know, uh, I always liken it to like putting an addition on your house, right? You have this nice little house, which is like econ 101. And then you put this little addition on it, which is like, all right, well, you know, now we're going to come off the gold standard. And then you put another little addition on it. It's like, all right, we're going to do a little light quantitative easing. And, and by the way, you know, we're looking at spending. We're not looking at productivity anymore. And, you know, all the way up until the very, very, very last definition that had some semblance of Austrian economics, which was GDP, right, which is a measure of productivity. You know, this is like the last relic of like basic economic law that now we're trying to change, saying, well, you know, we're not necessarily in recession until uh, if productivity is slowing down. It's like, yeah, actually, that's what a fucking recession is. Like, it's a contraction in economic productivity. So, you know, we have just uh, we are just defiling the corpse of what's left of basic economic law here. And, you know, no matter how many Twitter spaces you or I do, uh, you know, people just aren't going to figure it out. Uh, it just doesn't seem like, and the answer is right there, you know. Yeah, and, 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 they, and they go directly to the name of the space, which I changed a few times, but economic stupidity and the crisis of logic. And the, the, the question I always wrestle with is, is why? So I've, I've made this joke many times before that, you know, the most prophetic movie of all time was Idiocracy, right? right. Which, I, yeah. which I think is what we're seeing. But, but, but why is that? I don't believe that people have not necessarily gotten dumber on average. I mean, I'm sure average IQs are still the same compared to history. I mean, what is driving this complete lack of wanting to actually push back on these narratives, on these policies, even the canceling of student debt? And I agree 100 percent. To me, that's that's sort of paving the way for broader debt forgiveness, which is probably well, the real I, end game. I think it's just that it's a nasty mix of like um, not understanding how the whole thing works, you know, lack of education and like willful ignorance. A lot of people don't understand the basics and they either don't understand them because they don't have the capacity to understand it and they're not interested in economics or whatever, or because they're like good everyday Americans who are like plumbers, welders, and like the guys that I hang out with that don't really give a fuck because they're too busy out there generating the productivity that the country definitely, you know, needs. When I'm talking to my buddy who's laying bricks here in old city Philadelphia to help repair the roads, which are all cobblestone roads, you know, and, and I try to have a conversation with him about, uh, you know, uh, Austrian versus Keynesian economics, like he doesn't care, you know, he spends the day 
laying, putting bricks into the ground so that the cobblestone roads here look nice. And then when he gets done, he knows that he's worked. He knows that he's generated productivity for eight hours. He knows that he's, you know, contributing to something and he wants to have a beer and he wants to kick it and he wants to relax. He doesn't want to dive into the fucking intricacies of inflation. And so, you know, there's a lot of great people in this country that are similarly situated. They do what they, you know, what they were born and raised and told to do, which is to be productive and to, um, you know, support their household economically. And they do that through working, you know, and they trust that the system uh, is sound and that the system is working the way it should be. And that, you know, they trust that if they go out and work for 40 years, that they're going to be okay. And, and, you know, that's what makes inflation and a lot of these other MMT slash Keynesian uh, concepts so nefarious is they, they operate in the background, right? They're like, this, they're like this background program on your computer that's running that nobody really sees or hears or, you know, especially when inflation was at 2%, 3%, you know, the Fed and the government saying everything's fine, but really they're whittling away at your savings, uh, to the tune of 2% or 3% every year. And, 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 and I would argue your rights, which goes to actually to your, your post about it's quietly stripping away our private property rights. So I want you to also riff on that, but go ahead. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you're right. And uh, the, uh, the point is that, you know, all of these things are happening in the background. And so, you know, this is occurring because there's this nasty mixture of people not understanding what's going on, people that are, you know, working and don't have the time, don't really have the, they don't care to understand it. And then I think um, there's also a, on the far, far other end of the spectrum, there's a group of, you know, academics and wannabe faux academics out there that really think that they have, there's an arrogance there where they think that they have figured out a way that they can micromanage and kind of rewrite economic laws and, uh, you know, natural laws um, to their liking. And they're going to find out what everybody else throughout history has found out, which is that, you know, natural laws and economic laws have a way of whipsawing back and reverting to the mean. And they will. And that's, you know, what cost the Roman Empire the Roman Empire. And, you know, <laughs> there will be consequences for that. So, uh, you know, Ron Paul says, look, the free market is always going to win. It may take a little bit more time. Um, you know, we can distort things as much as we'd like, but at some point there's going to be, there's going to be a reversion. And then if they try to distort things even further to the point where, you know, you talk about global debt jubilees or the great reset or any of this bullshit, you know, then the consequences are going to be different. It might be like civil unrest consequences in that case. Um, I don't know. You know, all, all I know is, there's a certain arrogance from people that go out and and claim that, you know, we have this under control and that we can micromanage, um, which, you know, what are pretty much sacrosanct, uh, you know, very uh, natural laws that, you know, the, the laws of economics are the laws for a reason. And so as far as we want to try to deviate from them, um, they're eventually going to whipsaw back to the mean and whatever the whatever they in that process, whatever consequences there are uh, that we're going to have to bear the brunt of, um, you know, we we will. But for now, it's it's a lot of academics sitting around, kind of patting each other on the back, congratulating each other on various awards that they're winning, 
telling each other that they're, uh, you know, it's like, it reminds me of a debate I watched on MSNBC, like seven years ago or eight years ago, or Peter Schiff was debating, um, he was debating inflation with a couple other people sitting around the desk. And one of them was a, a Princeton professor, I think. And, you know, he's talking about inflation as uh, a result of expansion of the money supply. And this woman chimes in, this professor chimes in to make this point about velocity. And basically her point is, you know, look, because there's no velocity with this money, because it's all being parked somewhere that we're not going to, you know, it's not really inflation. And the way she delivers it, she says to him, listen, you know, there's this thing we learn about in the first year of uh, in the first year of economics at Princeton, uh, it's a little thing called velocity, you know, like as if he doesn't understand what velocity is, number one, but like, you know, just delivered that way. That's the arrogance and the hubris. And that's the type of thinking she's sitting there thinking like, wow, I'm so enlightened. I understand velocity. I'm going to make this incredible point here when like, you know, a lot of us are are way past that, you know, like, OK, we get it. Like we we get what you are putting forth as the MMT scam, we get, it's like when people tell me about Bitcoin, like, oh, dude, you just don't get it. I'm like, no, maybe the fucking problem is I do get it. You know, like, <laughs> maybe you well, don't okay. get let, let, let me pause you on that, because I think this is, a, this, I think what you're, what you're hitting on is something which is such a frustration for me and has been for so many years that I went so extreme to point out the ridiculousness of it to the point where I have the word few in my profile, because Every, all these things I keep saying, if you understand this, it's atrocious. This is me basically poking fun at the condescending elitist nature of any counter argument to anything that I say or anybody else says that's simply trying to dig deeper. That might be the fringe of the fringe to counter right. these narratives. Well, yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of what it boils down to, right? Is it boils down to this, uh, you know, both sides of the aisle, both thinking that the other side doesn't get it. And so, you know, when people laugh at advocates for Austrian economics, they often say, you know, dumb things like, oh, broken clock is right twice a day. Or, you know, you just don't understand this thing we learned the first year at Princeton economics, which is called velocity. You know, have you ever heard of it? You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like maybe the problem is they do get it, you know, and they do understand the argument that you're trying to make and they still think that it's flawed. So it's like. You know, look, no matter how much academic jargon you cloak this disgusting pig of an economy and this horrifying monetary policy in, you know, the consequences, you know, it's like plugging a hole in a dam. Like you plug one hole and all of a sudden the leak moves somewhere else. And then, you know, you plug another hole and all of a sudden the leak moves somewhere else. It's like, you know, the problem is there's just too much water pressure. Like you're not going to be able to stop the dam from bursting no matter how many times you go and try to put a Band-Aid on things. Um, and so and the longer we do that, the worse the consequences are going to be. And so a lot of arrogance. Please make sure you follow Chris on Twitter uh, and obviously subscribe to his podcast, Quote the Raven. Um, it's, it's, it's funny, by the way, Chris, that I noticed on on Apple, it's categorized as investing. Uh, on Spotify, it's categorized as comedy. And I give you a lot of credit because I think it's a combination of the two. But if you want to ask questions... Well, and, to- you know, look, I don't set out to be a comedian. It's just that the system is so ridiculous that... Yeah, no, no, I know, agree 100%. Yeah, it's, it's it kind is of like, funny. Right, no, no and, and, and that's, that's the other thing. I've tweeted that out before. It's like, 
what what else am I supposed to do when Rome is burning except make fun of it? Or, or yeah, well, it's also you know like a it's also also like a travesty of like Shakespearean right, exactly. proportions, right? So you can categorize it however you want. I don't know. Right. You know, Substack right. does the same thing. They you know one one day I'm in politics, the other day I'm in finance, the next day I'm in business, whatever. It's like I don't care. You know, people ask me what my podcast is. I say just don't listen. You know, don't worry about it. <laughs> right, right. Co- co- comedy of errors, I think, is, is the mm-hmm. best way to describe it. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I think what haunts me in general is the fact that, and you know, this is why I like doing short research too, because a lot of times when you're doing research on companies that are either committing fraud or, you know, not playing nice, they're misrepresenting, you know, their business or whatever. um, What it is, is oftentimes a lot of people that think that they're smarter than everybody else and that they're kind of getting one over on everybody else. And I, I don't really like that. Uh, You know, I think that uh, being a public company is an exorbitant privilege. It allows you access to trillions of dollars in liquidity. It keeps all these other like absolutely horrific companies that can't generate cash and don't have a real business um, afloat. It allows them to sell stock. It allows them to enrich their insiders. Um, And so I kind of take offense to that. I feel like those things, uh, you know, those are inefficiencies that should be rooted out. And I think that the wool gets pulled over people's eyes a lot. And so, you know, it's the same exact way that I feel about macro right now. Um, You know, I've been saying the same thing that I've been saying since, you know, I started to figure out what the hell was going on. So my tune hasn't really changed. I'm not surprised by inflation. You know, I've took exception with inflation when it was at 3%. You know, to me, it just seemed very much like the Fed doesn't understand what they're doing. They're too late to react when they do react, they overshoot the mark. That makes things worse. The gate swings wildly in the other direction. Um, <clears throat> yet they're held out to be, they're held out to have this, you know, understanding of things that the rest of the common folk can't understand. And and I don't believe that's the case. Uh, you know, I think it, it's just one of those things where everybody walks around and assumes that somebody else has it under control. Um, but I think I've seen so many times, you know, just growing up, I'm, I'm, I'm only 40 years old, but just growing up, I've seen so many instances where I've assumed that somebody else has things under control because they're in a position of power or because they have credentials or because they have a long CV or whatever. And they don't, you know, you show up and you meet them or you talk to them or you ask them for proof or you ask them for their thought process and there's nothing there. There's a, you know, it's a big, a big, empty, uh, big, empty head with no ideas in it. And so, <clears throat> You know, the more I've looked into macro and the more I watched the Fed, um, you know, it seems to be the same type of case. I mean, listen, a lot of people out there, when the FOMC minutes break on a Wednesday, right, it's covered by every international news organization everywhere. It's like some of the biggest news in the world as it unfolds. Why? Because, you know, you got this group of people that sit around 
and they scrutinize the economy and then they release their thoughts on it and what they think their policy decisions are going to be accordingly. Now, what the average American thinks is like, wow, you know, they're running complex models and graphs and they're having these deep discussions to try to figure out, you know, what the best uh, course of action is for everybody going forward. Meanwhile, anybody that's watched this over the last six months knows that they are uh, not skating to where the puck is going. They're skating to where the puck has been. But regardless, everybody sits around and kind of assumes that, like, uh, you know, there's this uh, grand meeting of the minds between all these uh, Nobel Prize winning, uh, you know, Nobel uh, candidates, whatever, right? Like the, the best of the best, the, the Mensa candidates, the PhDs, the best we can muster up. When really what it boils down to is turn on 60 Minutes and watch Neil Kashkari a year ago say, well, we just print unlimited money. And the guy's like, so you basically just flood the system with money? He's like, yeah, we just flood the system with money. It's like, okay, so all these thoughts about these complex models and charts and graphs and all these incredible brain trusts getting together, trying to you know think of these complex solutions and derivatives among derivatives and game theory of what could happen to the global economy. It all just boils down to this fucking guy on the news just saying like, well, we just hit the go button on the printer, regardless of the consequences. Nobody talks about, you know, uh, inequality, the, the, the equality gap, the inequality gap widening. Nobody talks about, you know, uh, what the transfer purchasing power looks like when when the Fed does something like QE. It just boils down to that. So it's like, all right, all of a sudden you start to think like, wow, like maybe this isn't a group of people with complex solutions. Right. Maybe this is just people that have one solution and they're they're reacting. They're not they're not skating to where the puck is going. They're skating to where it's been. What they're doing now with rate hikes should have been what they followed through with in 2018, but they didn't because they're at the behest and they should have done it before that too. Yellen should have done it, but they're at the behest of the stock market. And really they, they're cowards. They don't like the pressure of when the market goes down. Uh, they don't like the light that it casts them in and they don't like, uh, you know, the political pressure that comes with that. And if you want to be a central banker, the point is to be clinical and objective, right? You're supposed to, ease the economy into recessions. If you buy all this Keynesian bullshit, you're supposed to ease the economy into recessions. And then when we're in a boom and we're in a euphoria, you're supposed to kind of, you know, throw a blanket on that fire. So let me just round out the point I'm trying to make here. The, the point is uh, what drives me is I feel like we're surrounded by people that everybody assumes understands what's going on and that they have this incredible, you know, group of, uh, individuals with superpowers, uh, when really they're just average people. Like they go home, like we do. There's nothing that Jerome Powell or Neil Kashkari understands that we all don't have the capacity to understand. And so then you start to, you know, hold their decisions in a different light, you know, like, did, did they really get it? Why are we staring at 9% inflation right now? It's, I'd also say real quick before bringing, bring in Alan, that there, there's an incentive mismatch, which people don't really fully appreciate, right? So uh, Powell's worth like 30, 40 million. You look at Congress, the total wealth is like north of 2 billion, right? So the, 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 the people who are making the policy decisions have an incentive to turn the spigots on because it does benefit them personally. I mean, I know this is a cynical view, but I think there is a reality to that when it comes to looking at the wealth of those who are making decisions. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's the kind of like this shit with um, the Fed governor's trading futures ahead of Fed decisions and Congress people buying and selling stocks 
with information that they have pertaining to fiscal policy decisions that will directly affect their investments. I mean, that's a level of arrogance and hubris that really makes you feel like, I think Tim Dillon was just saying this on uh, Rogan's podcast, somebody I was just listening to, you know, that's, that's the kind of arrogance you see like right before the fall of Rome. I mean, that is just preposterous. That is preposterous. The idea, the idea, you know, look, putting aside everything I just said, and that these people may not have one one hundredth of the understanding that everybody thinks that they do, put all that aside, right? And then on top of that, to have the arrogance to go and to trade futures ahead of a Fed decision, and you're a Fed governor? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? To be Nancy Pelosi, to be fucking around in, you know, tech stock calls and puts, she's not even buying equity. She's going right for the derivatives. She's like, fuck it. You know, I'm an insider trade. I might as well, you know, make 20 times my money instead of two times my money in there, you know, buying and selling Apple calls and puts every week. Give me a break. I mean, that is that's so horrifically inappropriate. And that goes from both sides of the aisle. Just using Pelosi as a uh, as an example, because she's been in the news. I mean, that is absolutely obscene. And by the way, she's worth a couple hundred million dollars already. A lot of it's due to her husband. He was very successful. Put the shit in a fucking mutual fund and be the speaker of the house if that's what you want to do. All right. Don't, I don't need to see financial disclosures every fucking two, three weeks that she's trucking in and out of Tesla calls and NVIDIA calls while there's legislation in Congress talking about doling $80 billion out to the EV industry. It's absolutely sickening. And, and it's just, I mean, tone deaf is, an understatement. All right. But it's the same woman that went out and, you know, got her hair done after all the uh, salons were, uh, were closed in, in California due to COVID, you know, same woman that after we found out there was a virus that, you know, was originating in China, decided to go to Chinatown and surround herself with as many Chinese people as possible. I mean, that's, you know, I don't, I don't know what to tell you about a person like that. It's just, If you went out of your way to make the worst possible decision, I don't think you could make decisions like that. So it's horrifying. And those are some of the things that kind of keep me motivated to write. Yes, it's basically the hypocrisy of power, I think, is a way to frame it. They've never gotten it right. Right. The right, Fed no, has and, never and accurately quick, predicted. The Fed has never predicted accurately when and how a recession is going to take place. Now, whether it's but, 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 real quick, real quick, but, but I think this is this is important, and uh, I don't mean to interrupt, but I think this is important because I think the dilemma with with this is that you mentioned the seventies, right? All this is you can argue, argue largely because we got off the gold standard. We'll talk about gold in a moment here, but I think the issue is that uh, economists, you know, didn't recognize there was a paradigm shift when you went to a pure fiat based system. And you didn't really have any economic data to then extrapolate conclusions from because you always had some kind of gold-based system, right? So everyone's, I think, working under the assumption that this data that they're looking at for centuries is valid. But that was a very serious break in the way the system works. Well, let me just say this. Let me just say this. The, The country is in such a financially precarious position that people don't even understand. And you're making a very good point, right, which is that. We, you know, what do we have to fall back on in the United States other than a our military and b this, you know, accepted uh, axiom globally that the dollar is going to remain the reserve currency uh, ad infinitum, which 
you know, it just isn't true. It's just mathematically an impossibility. It just doesn't make any sense. But that's it, right? So what we have is we have a bloated government that is spending too much, that's, that has fooled itself into thinking that it can offer people, uh, you know, social benefits and, uh, you know, all of these things that we talk about canceling student debt and, you know, subsidies and incentives and all this stuff. Uh, we fooled ourselves into thinking that we can just do that and that we really never have to pay this tab. It'll never come due. Yeah. And, 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 and again, I'll, I'll, and I think, and let me turn that into a question because Al Chris has a point on this. I, I think it's an important, goes back to incentives, right? You got to always question what's the incentive of the, you know, but, you know, obviously I'm doing something not that dissimilar and that's somewhat to be expected, but I think you have to do it in a, in a way with, with a degree of integrity. Chris, I know you want to wrap up that, that point you want to bring up and then I'll bring up some of the other audience, but, but go ahead, Chris. Well, let me just, let me just make a couple of points. The first is the gentleman is just speaking is hundred percent right. I mean, nobody that makes their way onto the financial media, nobody that's anybody, okay, is held accountable when they're wrong and everybody is taken seriously regardless of what their track record is. And so the financial media will have, you know, the, will have the same people on over and over and over regardless. You know, Mike Novogratz, I'm sure he's a nice guy, right? I'm sure he's done great as an investor, you know, but like comes on CNBC 150,000 times, pumps up this terra coin the luna coin he goes out and gets a fucking tattoo of it whatever you know he's peddling an asset in a in an asset class that nobody knows anything about nobody knows where it's going to be in 20 years you know it doesn't really seem to serve any purpose uh provide any product or service whatever he gets as much airtime as he wants to come in talk about that whatever this thing crashes it goes to zero you know billions of dollars are wiped off and who's the, who's the next guest a week later? It's like, oh, let's have this guy on for his for his mea culpa and then for his thoughts on his next idea. It's like, how about you fucking don't, right? Like, and, you know, I can't watch one more day of Tom Lee. You know, like, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I, I don't know what incentivizes him. Maybe he really does think that the market is only going to go up and things are only going to be great all the time. But, you know, they described him as like the keynote guest. A month ago, somebody said, "Like our keynote guest on uh, our keynote guest on uh, halftime report is Tom Lee." I'm like, I know what this fucking guy's gonna say. I've been listening to him say it for five years. Yet they continue to go to him. It's like, all right, you know, the, the same people. Nobody saw March of 2020 coming. There was not one goddamn person on the financial news that said this virus is going to be a problem. It's going to shock the shit out of the markets. Everything's going to get closed down and we're going to have a huge, huge, huge issue. Not one person said that. What happened was the market crashed. And then afterwards, they started bringing people on like, well, what do we do? Who could have seen this coming? What would you do here? So like the idea that nobody is held accountable and everybody's talking their book is 100% right. To go back to what I was just saying about the country, the country is in a very precarious financial position. Okay. We don't have any productive capacity in the country. We're not producing anything anymore. So if you're an Austrian economist or, you know, you're an old school economist, productivity is at the core of everything. You have to produce things in order to incite demand, in order to make money, you know, in order to collect, uh, you know, on the top line for the for your business or for your municipality or for the government, whatever. There, there has to be production happening somewhere. And we don't have any production. We rely on the production of other countries, namely countries like China, right? We get a lot of our shit from China. We get a lot of our stuff from Mexico, right? And so the lack of productive capacity 
means that we have to come up with money to get all this stuff over here. Where does that money come from? Well, it comes from really adding to the national debt and printing money, right? And that is an unsustainable path. We cannot continue to just print money and run deficits in order to import everything to sustain our quality of life forever. You can't. It's a mathematical impossibility. It's a logical fallacy. It doesn't make any sense. And so what we're sitting on, what we're banking on, you know, the things that make this Inflation Reduction Act possible that, you know, we can go out and say, all right, you know, $400 billion in new spending or the, the, the mindset that can empower somebody like Elizabeth Warren to go out there and say, we need to cancel all student debt right now. This frame of mind that we're in all hinges upon the idea that the dollar is going to remain the reserve currency and the dollar is going to continue to be in demand. Because if we lose the dollar, we lose everything. Our quality of life in the country will drop in a fashion that people are not going to be able to ignore. You know, even 9%, 10% inflation, okay, it's it's a huge discomfort for a lot of people, but it's not, you know, famine, plague, pestilence, and austerity. If we lose the dollar, we will see real austerity in the country. So what's happening right now? Right now you have the BRIC nations, okay, all joined. So Russia goes in and invades Ukraine, right? The West comes out and says, we're going to sanction Russia, Right. So we're going to cut off, you know, Russia from the SWIFT system. We're going to not deal in Russian assets, whatever, you know, the euro and uh, the EU rather and the U.S. and everybody, you know, bands together because, you know, that's uh, that's our plan. We're going to, you know, we're going to stick it to them. We're going to make a point. What does Russia do? Russia turns around and says, "Okay, well, we have the oil and we have a bunch of gold and we've been de-dollarizing ourselves over the last decade, along with China by, um, you know, basically uh, selling our uh, dollar reserves that we have. <clears throat> and so Russia says, OK, bring it. Kick us off the SWIFT system. No problem. By the way, if you want our oil, if you want anything from our country, you're going to have to pay for it in rubles or you're going to have to pay for it in gold. Right. So the price of everything oil related crashes in Russia. What happens? China swoops in and says, oh, here's a bunch of nice strategic oil assets that we're going to be able to use for the next hundred years. We'll buy some of these. By the way, you know, you're our longtime ally, Russia. Let's be friends. China and Russia gang up. Okay, great. So as my friend Andy Sheckman said on my podcast last week, what's one of the recent things that has given the dollar its reserve status is the idea that, you know, uh, it's going to be pegged to uh, oil, right? That the, uh, you know, the U.S. protection of the Saudi kingdom is going to make, you know, the dollar essentially a petrodollar. And that's that's that. Um, and so what are we seeing now? Well, we're seeing Saudi Arabia ally itself with China and Russia. Oh, and now all of a sudden, India's in the picture too. So now you have uh, really four, five, six major countries that have a lot of productive capacity, not just in oil, but you know, China produces everything. Remember when we couldn't get pharmaceuticals during COVID because we couldn't get some of the stuff we needed from China? I mean, everything comes from China. So now you have Russia, China, Saudi Arabia, India together, they come out in June and make an announcement that they're starting their own reserve currency, right? Nobody pays attention. Nobody notices. We're having what I think could be a historic bifurcation of the global economy right now, wherein the dollar is, I mean, legitimately in the midst of being challenged as the global reserve currency. And nobody notices. Nobody writes about it. Nobody talks about it. And you have Elizabeth Warren calling for the cancellation of student debt. So to say that people are are understanding what's going on and reacting with a modicum of humility and modesty and common sense and you know 
fiscal, uh, you know, conservativeness uh, is just a falsehood. People just don't get it. And so the country is in this insanely precarious position that nobody seems to understand. The last point I want to make is that, look, we've seen 225 basis points of rate hikes in the last five months leading up to December of 2018 when we saw the market crash and then we saw, you know, Steve Mnuchin flip out and call the banks and, you know, we, the uh, the Fed had to come out and kind of pivot then. Okay, that was two and a half or three years of 25 basis point hikes uh, prior to that happening, that we saw that crash, right? What we've just done now is we've hiked 225 basis points in the span of six months. And if people don't think that there is going to be a major lockup in credit, even with all this extra liquidity, a major lockup in credit markets, that the aftershocks of these rate hikes have been felt yet, people that think that you know these things have made their way through the system, I think are kidding themselves. I think that the market is due to be shocked here. I think that, you know, and they're still raising, right? So they'll raise another 50 basis points or 75 basis points, whatever. But, uh, but at some point over the next quarter or two, in my opinion, uh, I feel like uh, the market is really going to throw a shit fit. So those are the three points I wanted to make. Thank you. So, so maybe my, uh, my few understand this is not so sarcastic after all. Maybe if you really do understand it. Well, look, if you were going to try to engineer a – do you agree that Russia and China have worked on de-dollarizing over the last decade? Yeah, but hasn't it accelerated over the last decade? Like the, the Russia holds like no uh, – dollar denominated reserves anymore do they so you just think that the dollar is going to maintain its strength in the face of uh you know the country's financial position just because people trust it that it will remain the reserve currency going forward the dollar's strength right now is coming from the fact that people believe that the fed is you know uh is doing the right thing and raising rates and that they're going to be able to sustain that you know that's that's where i think a lot of the strength in the dollar is coming from you know, and when the Fed is forced to pivot, and they will be forced to pivot, um, you know, you're going to see those gains evaporate. Let's talk about the weight. Let's talk about the dollar ruble, though, right? Like the ruble lost a ton of its value against the dollar when we put the sanctions in place, and now it's back and has eclipsed those highs. So, what do you attribute that to? Right. So, you don't think it has anything to do with Russia's productive capacity, or you know, I their. Don't. Yeah, in essence, they're a giant oil company, right? But you don't That's think the fact is. that you don't think the fact that they control the productive means there gives them leverage that we don't have. What would uh, the what would the quality of life in the U.S. look like? You know, if we couldn't import from China. So, can I, can I, can I say something real quick? Can I say something real quick? I, I actually love this backward. This is this kind of goes back to the, the respectful conversation. I, actually, I like Chris your Socratic method, uh, which is asking questions to answer the question, which I think is actually good. We are either going to suffer a loss of quality of living, you know, or we're going to uh, see the dollar depreciate. It's going to be one or the other. Yeah, and that's uh, a very good point. You know, there's uh, – look, I have a, a long-only portfolio that I run. It's, I'm not a long-only investor, but one of my portfolios is specific just to long-only. And, you know, I've – bought some tax-free municipal bonds and shit like that over the last six months, eight months, just because I buy everything in there because I, I don't want to sit around and have to bother thinking about, well, what's going to happen next, right? So I own some bonds. I own some stocks. I own a lot of miners. I try to not stay, you know, dollar denominated. I try to move out of the dollar also. Um, you know, that's, that's a fair enough statement, you know, to, and that's something I'll, uh, you're not ever going to hear me tell you that anybody knows exactly where it's going to go. 
I just think it's important to get as many perspectives on the table as possible if we're going to try to make some kind of educated decisions for ourselves, for our family, for our community, for the country, for our municipality, for our state. Um, you know, <clears throat> we can't be like, you know, we have to welcome perspectives that don't, you know, like that last guy was a currency trader. He knows a shitload more about currency than I do. He knows, you know, about how Gazprom, you know, funds their accounts and how they process their payments. And, you know, I don't know. I don't understand that stuff. I'm like a very bird's eye kind of like, to me, the big point there was if they have all the productive capacity and our quality of life would suffer greatly without them, well, then we're beholden to them. And that's all you need to know. It doesn't matter what the DXY is at right now. It just matters that we're beholden to them. To your point about student loans, right? I People say this stuff all the time. They're like, well, you know, it's the government's debt and then the government just writes it down. And so, you know, like you're saying, I didn't even understand half the shit you're just saying. There's just contraction in the money supply, this, that, the other. It's like, look, nothing's free. That's all you need to know. Nothing's free. You got... $3 trillion worth of college and college-related expenses that have occurred through the creation of some type of debt somewhere, right? Somebody had to pay all of that money for kids to go through college, right? Somebody paid the professors, somebody paid the universities, somebody paid for the books. You know, all those things cost money. The reason a university works is because it incentivizes its employees by paying them, Right. And so they're providing a service to universities. Somebody pays for that service. Right. And now what you're saying is whoever paid for it, whether it came out of Joe Biden's back pocket or it came out of some line item on, a, on an Excel spreadsheet somewhere, that somebody can just make that go away. And that just doesn't make sense. That means that the taxpayer is on the hook for it one way or the other, whether it's from, you know, uh, higher taxes, whether it's from we're going to bear the brunt of the cost through inflation. Um, you know, you cannot, as much as our current administration uh, hates to hear it, you, you you can't just manifest free stuff out of thin air because at the end of the day, you know, products and services have to come from somewhere. They ha and, and what incentivizes people to provide services or create products is, you know, you're going to pay them. So, uh, you know, it's it's all very basic to me. Well, the, the only reason <clears throat> that, you know, our poverty line is much higher than theirs is because we've been relying on their productive capacity. I mean, the quality of life in the country, something we'll have to give, right? First off, our debt to GDP is a lot higher than China's is, right? Which just shows you that the amount of debt that we're taking on versus what it is that we're... So that means, like, if it comes down to brass tacks, like, we don't really have what we would need to produce in the country to maintain the quality of life that we have now if something happened where, you know, China cut us off, like the last guy said. Well, things would get bad in very short order. And so, you know, while we may not see it monetarily, we'll bear the brunt of it in our in our quality of life. Um I don't know. That's that's really the point there. Uh, so I think that's uh, maybe a good way to end. I just tweeted out it's uh, Ravens and Tears is all I see on my Twitter app here. Uh, everybody, again, please make sure you follow Chris. Make sure you follow Deerpoint as well, who I did a space with not too long ago. Uh, thank everybody for joining, participating, asking questions. I think this was a, a very interesting, thoughtful conversation. And again, please make sure you follow Chris. Check out the Quote the Raven podcast and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Chris, you're the man. I do appreciate your time here. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, 
or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.